This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is August 10th, 2023. I'm Scott Bolinda And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's slow summer news show, we get into some of the rhetoric that's going around. That's apparently the biggest thing. Uh, possible digital news tax that Canada is forging ahead with. A challenge to the blocking of Facebook via the Competition Bureau. And a challenge to the Governor General for being the wrong bilingual. She is bilingual, but she doesn't speak French, so therefore she should be sued. This is Canada. Well, kicked out of her job. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, get, I, I guess the government is being sued, not her specifically. Support the show, patreon.com slash politicoast, and get access to our Slack channel. Apparently nothing is happening in British Columbia right now. The government must be so happy here. Federally... The Conservatives, we talked about all the money they have last week. Well, now we know what they're doing with it. They are spending it on a massive summer ad campaign, $3 million and a series of new videos that's going to be spent over the next three months uh, to reintroduce Pierre Polyev to Canadians. Or more like introduce him? Like his um, notability numbers aren't super high. Yeah, they're kind of there for an opposition leader. But, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians are kind of like vaguely aware of who he is but like don't have a very like baked in sense of uh who the leader of the opposition potentially next prime minister is uh so they're busy pushing that out um the weird thing to me on all of this has to be the timing though not only dropping it in kind of the end of summer where you know most people are not paying attention as much on vacation and i don't know maybe ad rates are a little better or something just during this time but there's that. Also, he's been leader for nearly a year now, and nobody, whether it's the uh, conservatives or the liberals, have put any significant effort into defining who he is. And if the, um, you know, going back a few years, when a new liberal leader was named, the uh, conservative party was cutting tack ads that afternoon. And there's just not been anywhere near that extent that we've seen really for any of the conservative leaders and particularly Pierre Polyev, who there's quite a bit to run negatives against him on. Yeah, there's tons there. He's been in parliament a very long time and has said a lot of reprehensible things in that time. If you just do a cursory look through uh, Hansard, this new series of ads is kind of interesting. You have one introduced by his wife, Anaid Pioliev. I believe that's how you pronounce her name, Anna. She seems to go by as well, where she titles her tweet, Why My Husband Is Doing This, But I Just Can't Stop Reading It. Why Is My Husband Doing This? It has a period <sighs> in it. Like, there's very clearly not a question mark in there. <laughs> it, it, it's a Twitter ex post. I mean, it could be punctuations trivial there anyway but um it's a video that 
basically just tries to pitch him as like a family guy. Like he's very deeply, it shows him and his kids and his wife a lot. And, you know, CBC talks about it, trying to take the hard edge off, show the softer light. A second video he released uh, shows him doing a puzzle with one of his children, talking about Canada is broken, but they can put the puzzle back together. And he's like forcing this young child to do a puzzle. Um, kids aren't very good at puzzles at that age, to be fair. Uh, yeah, like forcing maybe editorializing a bit, but yeah, it's also the kids young enough that uh, they are not a particularly active participant in the puzzle solving process or, or the video. Uh, and the third one is a classic. It's an actual policy one. It's back to the carbon tax. Uh, they have not learned the lesson of the BCNDP of the you know two thousands, which is and twenty tens, which is maybe after a while stop talking about the tax yeah They're i mean they literally borrowed at the ats the tats line from the bcndp for that one worked well for them yeah. uh, at least the conservatives have a tighter brand with tax cuts than like the bcndp of that era so you know it will appeal to their base but i'm not so, yeah convinced that anyone else is quite as up you know up in arms about the carbon tax these days. Well, I think it has more salience than, say, when Andrew Shear was running against it or when Aaron O'Toole was trying to find a way to get rid of it but also basically have the same thing. Um, and that's because cost of living is just such a bigger issue right now that the salience of it may be higher than it was before on that aspect. So I could see, yeah, maybe this whole gains there. But I don't know, there, there are just so many targets of opportunity with cost of living. It feels weird to pick that one. Maybe not weird, like I entirely get why that they're returning to some well-worn territory on that one. But it feels unstrategic to pick that one. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I did just do a quick Google and found a Nanos poll from this past week that says two-thirds of Canadians, uh, roughly 67%, say it's a poor time to increase the carbon tax, and a majority says the carbon tax is ineffective at tackling climate change. I mean, on its own, that's probably true on the latter. No one policy is going to solve climate change, and especially at the value it's at, the carbon tax isn't going to do a ton. But, you know, and amidst rising... Uh, inflationary prices on everything saying to people do you think we should raise more taxes they're probably going to say no yeah and so there's like maybe tax, some sympathy there but and particularly tax that gets incorporated into the cost of a lot of goods and services like this isn't oh let's you know tweak the uh upper bracket of the income tax or something where you know you do that like most people don't actually think that's going to affect them that's a whole lot different than everything you buy gets a little bit more expensive, but you also get a rebate on it. Maybe, depending on your particular province and how the whole thing gets structured. Yeah. Back to the ad campaign as a whole, I mean, I could nitpick in a very petty way each of the like family videos, but I won't. I mean, they're going for that soft image uh i it's well, hard to tell to me if they'll work it reminds me a lot of like trying to pivot 
Mulcair, Tom Mulcair's image from the angry fighter to like, he's the smiley guy now. And it was awkward. Maybe this will work because they have money to actually think about it more than just saying, hey, what if you smiled sometimes and didn't stop until people were creeped out? Yeah, well, and he's also probably not going to walk onto the debate stage looking like he's zoned out on uh, something like Mulcair did smiling all the time. And that was, yeah, weird and a little off-putting. And So there is softening your image and then there is like presented an entirely different person i think mulcair ran afoul of the latter and i'm not sure this one does now, I, I think it's a very good uh decision on their part to have his wife doing the voiceover for the main this is who pierre polyev is had on that because it's taking someone who knows him very well and kind of from there the this is what i know of who he is and it's a little less of a try and force something through it comes off as more genuine that way i think that's going to uh work better than Mulcair's mid-campaign personality change is and more to the point this is very clearly strategically done because they're obviously reading the same polls everyone else is that uh, the biggest impediment to Pierre probably have become prime minister is that he has a bunch of negatives. He comes across as too angry and does particularly poorly among women. And this is clearly a direct campaign to try and, you know, he's probably not going to win the uh, demographic of women, but you know, chip into that enough to get that, you know, one or 2% that he needs to add to his current poll numbers to, push him over the line he's got authority. a he's got a lot of work to do on that front with women in particular i know i saw an analysis recently highlight that in a vote in the fall or in the spring sitting one of the conservative backbenchers kathy wagenthal had brought forward one of those flavors of anti-choice bill this one would have uh i mean calling it an anti-choice bill is a bit much it's a bill that would have made it a double crime to had a it's a fetus personhood bill kind of thing i don't know it really is it basically would have raised the penalty for uh murdering and potentially assault i can't quite recall the phrase but basically committing a violent crime would have a increased penalty on it if the victim was a pregnant woman and something that judges already take into account or can yeah, but like it's formalizing that aspect. And you know, there are a lot of people, you know, there's a wide range of views you can have on abortion and still find that to be like a reasonable bit of legislation that isn't, you know, going to usher in an anti-choice dystopia. It's it, like it's, a, it's notable it that a, this came from one of the most anti-choice MPs in the Conservative yeah, Caucus. And it's also noticeable. actually does that like it does not do anything to make abortion harder to access it doesn't do anything to criminalize it like none of the things that actually at the end of the day have any real impact on that were in that bill and people framing that as an anti-choice bill are going all in on rhetoric that is unsupported by the actual text of the bill 
the bill is rhetoric though if it's not doing a lot it is Maybe. about starting a conversation there and opening a door and the fact that not a single conservative voted against it when conservatives in the past have voted against those kind of private members bills suggests some kind of shift within that caucus I mean, you shouldn't have people who are still supportive of a woman's right to choose and think that uh, they're that, um, you know, pregnant women are additionally vulnerable uh, because of the nature of pregnancy and that that should be a factor that is considered when sentencing someone for a violent crime. Scott, and if you're having to explain this to women, they're not going to vote for the conservatives. And that's the problem they're going to have here. So there's like the politics, yeah, there's a political aspect of it, but like I think it's worth pointing out that like on the matter of fats and not on the matter of spin, it was not an anti-choice bill. Agree to disagree. It came from the place. I mean, the text of it is very clear on that. Agree to disagree. The conservatives, you know, have their ad campaign here. Like you say, it's weird to bring it in now i wonder if they are just worried about a fall election campaign and they need to start spending as much money as they can like if you're I'm justin looking... trudeau you could call an election today and suddenly bring in expense limits you might not want to do that based on the polls but that's something stephen harper did in the past yeah although that case there was a fixed election coming up and he just extended out the campaign period uh in advance of that but the actual date of the vote didn't change yeah, and um, I think they fixed the thing where we can have a super long campaign to like juice to, the I mean, campaign it's harder budget to do. But like, I don't know. There's still quite a bit of flexibility ultimately in how um, governor generals dissolve legislatures and call elections, and it's. Yeah, one of those cases where like the constitutional aspects of on the advice of the first minister uh, and the actual test of statutes tends to be the former that often wins out um, on that. But regardless, like, the liberals would be absolutely crazy to um, call an election out. Not only because, like as we talked about last week, they don't actually have a, a full campaign worth of funding in the bank themselves they still need to do some fundraising and whatnot like they can get campaign loans uh to cover off some of that but you know they're not as strong a fiscal position as they could be going into that and also um in addition to that like they are just way down the polls yeah they, they unless they have you know photos of pierre polyev in blackface to drop during election like there's nothing that would at all made sense as a reason to call um a campaign now unless they have like truly devastating oppo um and even then it's a risk and realistically the liberals may just actually want to govern for a change they may want to do something while in power uh yeah, as we not, mentioned they had they a, be particularly good at doing stuff but um yeah considering like the odds are not in their favor just structurally at this point in it, that, uh, a government's lifespan, even before you get into the, the polls and the fundraising. Yeah, they should be wanting to try and squeeze out another couple of years on this if they're going to lose the next election anyway. As we mentioned, the Liberals had a 
fairly major cabinet shuffle a couple of weeks ago. You talked about that with the boys on short pants on this podcast. One of the switches was to move Sean Frazier into housing, and he's given an interview with Bloomberg where he delivered the goal of the government in his discussion with them on the housing file. And uh, as a homeowner, I will be glad to report that his goal is to, quote, not decrease the value of my home. In other uh, words, Canadian housing policy is not changing under this government? No, but he has a secondary goal to, quote, build more units that are at a price that other people who don't currently have their needs met can afford. In other words, they will um, magic- magically make housing more affordable while not changing the price of housing? Yeah. We are going to build new homes that are cheap for people who don't have homes yet and somehow fix the price of existing homes so they don't drop in a situation where demand has decreased as well. Yeah, there's so much wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> like the rest so of the, the rest of the interview is good. He talks a lot about the need to increase supply, the need to uh, make sure our housing starts are matching our immigration targets, something that's becoming an increasing uh, challenge for the government to justify uh, talks about revisiting pretty much anything that's on the books and hopefully announcing some more policies in the fall. But then, yeah, somehow also not scare the homeowners out there who are likely to vote liberal. And this is the fundamental problem with uh, housing policies. Through like decades, we have basically gone all in on housing as the primary asset that people own a huge portion of most households uh net worth is tied up in housing and like the implicit and now explicit goal of housing policy in the country is to ensure that housing house values never drop which is crazy because when you know you carry that out over 40 50 years you get entirely unaffordable housing and if you're going to solve the housing crisis, you need to make housing cheaper. And that means prices have to go down. And yeah, that means home values do have to drop. There's there's just no other way around it. The one possible path forward that they could have tried to chart five, ten years ago when they first got into government would be policies that effectively just freeze the price of housing. And then with inflation they become more affordable because people are earning more money, especially in the last couple of years, people's incomes jumped. That didn't happen though. Housing prices have doubled in like 10 years. And so. Oh, so like you can't really just like lock something in. Amp- like the, the market is always changing. You're never going to be able to just, you know, thread a needle of never having it, the nominal value go down or up. Like this is, yeah. 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 This is a government that, uh, has been asleep at the switch on like so many things that are like very obvious. The the idea that, you know, somewhere in CMHC or the housing minister, you know, they can like fine tune an incredibly complex market that has everything from like thousands on thousands of local zoning codes to interest rates to global commodity prices to changes in the skilled labor base that all factor into that. It was never possible to to do that uh, on this. Like, there is good stuff. I really want to emphasize there's good stuff in this interview. He talks about uh, working to 
set targets and draft policies to address housing issues. He says, quote, we need to be creating policies that incentivize developers to build more quickly and incentivize communities to pull the barriers down to allow developers to build more quickly. Uh, he talks about immigration is important and we're not going to be changing those targets, but he does flag that temporary immigration policies such as foreign students and temporary foreign workers have been problematic because they put a lot of strain on communities for their unpredictability, especially in like uh, university towns. So they may be looking at those again because many of those programs are uncapped. And so like there's smart stuff. It seems like he has his eye on some of the ways and maybe just this line about not decreasing the value of the home is purely a political like don't scare the homeowners. Still, it, it's not great when like the best case scenario is that the he's just lying about something. I mean, what would you have him say? <laughs> Fuck your homes. We're going to make them cheap. <laughs> I mean, I would have had him not say that at all. Like, you know, just don't engage. On, like, don't engage on that particular point. And, you know, talk about all the good stuff you're going to do. But, you know, for every homeowner that's reassured, you know, people like me who don't own a home just hear that as, yeah, the, the liberal government's not actually going to be the ones to solve this. And if you want uh, to one day own a home, you'll probably have to vote for another party. I look forward to one day seeing some policies from this government to deal with housing. They've done some things in the past, but oh, then counteracted to- them with things like their a uh, first time home buyer savings account which juices the demand side once again yeah in fact uh, Trisha Freeland was out earlier this week touting that as her kind of big sign the liberals care about housing and like yeah individually it's a not a bad program for people to take advantage of but structurally it does not actually help at all and like you said just juices demand yeah it turns out it's really easy to create a savings account program that really benefits middle and upper income earners without actually like fundamentally reshaping society in any way. The uh, registered education savings plan and Canada learning bonds or whatever the grant is that go into that are very similar in that like, sure, I can put a bunch of money away for my kids' education and get free money from the government and it's, you know, either tax-free or low-taxed. But that doesn't seem like the most you know, equitable way to develop a education funding program <laughs> or policy. Yeah, just like in the, ca- in the case of housing, like it doesn't actually solve the fundamental problem yes. and strain on the system. So here we are. Uh, one thing that would help is a lot more money and the government is looking at collecting possibly a billion dollars more a year through a new digital services tax. This is a tech tax that... Uh, the government has been working on for a while. It's largely been trying to work on it through negotiations through the OECD and other big countries, but those seem to be stalling. Our government's getting frustrated, and we have announced the draft Digital Services Tax Act and a like 200-page document explaining how this works. I'm not going to say that either of us fully understand it, other than the act is going to be a 3% tax on revenues derived by these companies on digital services they provide some uh basically anytime you a website engages with online users in canada it's only aimed at large businesses that earn more than 750 million euros globally uh and who's which man, can, if you're a, con- a company that's doing uh like 700 uh yeah 740 sorry cut that 
And if you're like a company that's basically doing the Canadian equivalent, which I think was like $1.1 billion, and just like the exchange rate shift or not, you're suddenly having cases where you have to pay the tax or you don't. It, it leads to like a kind of weird situation for Canadian businesses. Yeah. Uh, the secondary criteria is your Canadian digital services revenue is more than $20 million. Um, yeah. There might be a basis somewhere in here where there's like a sliding scale or it's like income tax. It's only the ink revenue above that threshold that gets taxed. I don't know for sure. There might be a way to make it so that it's not like discouraging companies from making a dollar more in a year. What does extra complicate this act is that presuming it comes into force by January 1st, 2024, it will apply to all revenues earned from January 1st, 2022, as in last year. Which doesn't strike me as great. Like, you know, people make a lot of decisions based on what the uh, tax law is, and particularly businesses that have people on payroll or outside consultants they hire to like really analyze this stuff and make decisions around. And I think it's reasonable that, you know, if people are going to make decisions on, on what the law is, that they, that there should be kind of a good faith expectation that the law at the time is going to be the operative law for anything that happens at that time and not be retroactively applied to it. And you know, it's probably not unconstitutional to do this, but it feels a little sketchy, gross. I, I'm not quite sure the right adjective here, but not great from like just a good governance perspective. It, yeah, it's it's not your ideal way to do policy, but though I do appreciate that at least announcing it now, it can help companies. And like they have talked about this before, and this is like an updated guidance they've released. So there is some pre-warning that this tax is coming. And like governments typically roll the tax they apply often to like the fiscal year that it comes in but usually there's enough warning that you can kind of make that sense this is going back a couple years which like i think you're allowed to do but and hey it gets the government some free money so i'm not gonna like be up in arms about this but i also don't disagree that it's like cruel and maybe the cruelty is the point although it's also worth pointing out it's not actually all that much money in the scale of uh the government, you know, this is what, a quarter of a percent of government revenue it would uh, increase by? You know, it's kind of a bit of a rounding error on the government's actual budget at this point. Indeed. Like, um, a billion dollars just isn't what it used to be. The The bill itself is, as I mentioned, it like it's part of a broader push that a number of countries are trying to get behind, but... This action is Canada essentially saying, we're impatient, the negotiations are being put off, we're not willing to fully buy into an extension, so we're going to do our own thing now. That has gotten a lot of press in the US because uh, Joe Biden is very mad at that. He's been trying to lead these negotiations and then also see uh, such a tax move through Congress, which would be impressive if he could do that. I'm uh, not as optimistic there. But this is leading to a situation where 
now Canada is being threatened with trade tariffs from the states because most of these taxes would apply to U.S. Co- large U.S. companies, Google, Microsoft, eBay, etc. Uh, Michael Geist does note that this could also apply to Canadian retailers such as Canadian Tire, Loblaws, and others who do have online website, online stores. Um, so at least this bill makes more like policy sense to me than C-18, which was just this hodgepodge attempt to solve varying grievances through you mean it's the messiest. Coherent? Yes. Uh, it says if you're selling stuff online, online, you should pay a 3% additional GST effectively. And like, I sure, I don't really care. I like, is it just to get money? I think sure. Fine. Um, a lot of online retailers do dodge a lot of taxes. So this is a nice way to make up for that. Um, but yeah, the trade tariff threat from the US seems real. And they could do a lot of damage to our economy if they want. I don't think that's a reason to back down, but it is a reason to move forward uh, Although, intelligently. In this case, they're like they are also conceptually on board with this tax, just later and when some of the details get hammered out. So, is it really backing down, or is it really just like delaying things a little bit until everyone can be happy with it? Yeah, and it does seem like the Canadian government is fully happy to withdraw this as soon as like the international deal is done, and we'll go with that, because it does make sense to harmonize your approach to large companies that are multinational. I mean, I shouldn't, I don't think we should go for the watered down version in every situation, but, you know, make some effort so that, like the worst case scenario is large tech companies look at this and go on if this is on top of c18 we're just not going to do business in canada and facebook shuts down access to canada which they could do well i mean the worst case scenario is that plus a whole bunch of tariffs on canadian goods yeah which you know in theory could end up costing more than a billion dollars to the country this isn't our Brexit, though. I don't. I don't think this is our Brexit. This doesn't seem like it would do as bad as Brexit. No, but you know, it's a, which was probably the single worst like economic decision any country has made in quite a long time. Yeah, it's not going to be you know economic uh, self-immolation. It's a it's a two trillion dollar economy. You don't have to uh, slice too much down off of it from a bunch of punitive tariffs with our largest trading partner to. Uh, lose one billion out of that it's a it's a fairly small percentage overall but that also means that you don't have to get hurt all that badly for that actually to uh accumulate up in uh percentage terms yeah but what's fascinating to me about this as well is just like the tilt in the coverage i don't see a lot of canadian media talking about this like i Michael Geist is talking about it because he'll talk about anything that deals with the internet and there aren't there aren't usually a lot of those bills and regulations coming forward until this government's latest round. And so it kind of begs the question for me, like, why, why is the Freeland and the government so eager to move ahead so quickly? Like, what is the, you know, real difference between doing this now and doing this in two years, if that's when the international community finally comes around? Yeah, I don't know. It almost feels like the uh, 
liberals are trying to like hitch their wagon to uh, kind of anti-tech politics, uh, which is a huge 180 from where they started out with at the uh, start of their government. But I don't know, that's kind of the vibe I get between this and C18 and a few other things. Uh, it, it really does start to feel like they think that their political future rests on being the anti-big tech party. Or even the responsibly regulated big tech party, oh, which it, I mean, C18 would be nice would if we could have that. that. But. It's regulation, but it's not particularly responsible regulation. Image versus um, rhetoric is the difference there. Yeah, so I guess we'll keep an eye on this draft bill and if it becomes a real bill and what that starts to imply and how that moves forward. This one I could see moving through Parliament relatively easy compared to some of the others, uh, unless the Conservatives line up against this, but... Probably not. It feels esoteric enough that um, they probably won't unless they, there's a really easy way to publicly link it to the uh, potential for retaliatory tariffs, which the phrase potential for retaliatory tariffs is boring enough that that's probably not actually going to be the case. I mean, the Conservatives can just take it as an, a tax, like making your life more expensive yeah, and just go after it for that reason. But it's I tough, though, don't know why they would. Unlike what we were talking about with the carbon tax, where there's actually like a direct um, effect on people's pocketbooks, yeah, this one is a little harder to say. I mean, it's worth remembering in that. Well, like, unless you, if policy. every web store you go to in Canada, if every online store you go to in Canada now has like a 3% surcharge line, kind of like you see the GST line at the grocery store, that will start to bug people. Yeah, because it's worth remembering. And I could see a lot of web stores putting that in as a separate line. Yeah, because it's worth remembering that uh, who the tax is levied on isn't necessarily the person who ultimately pays. Uh, it kind of depends who's the least flexible party in all of this. And for a lot of the uh, big web companies, they can probably pass those costs on to the end user. Uh, I think you mentioned, was it Loblaws earlier? Uh, yes. They're probably a little more constrained on that just because grocery is such a competitive, low-margin business. It may actually be tougher for them to to do that, and they might have to uh, eat that a little more. But yeah, for a lot of these, I expect that um, it'll end up being the uh, the end user that pays, or I guess in you know Meta's case, ad rates may go up slightly. Well, speaking of big tech, the other news story involving them this this week was a new lawsuit that's been announced by uh, CBC and a group of news publishers and broadcasters who have filed a complaint with Canada's Competition Bureau alleging that the decision by Meta to block news is anti-competitive. So, what? Hold on, is it supposed to be anti-competitive if you don't steal from someone anymore? The Because that was their whole point up until the bill actually passed, was that if uh, Meta was linking to them, it was stealing. So the argument they're explicitly trying to make here is that they can't run ads on Facebook now. If they can't run ads, that means Facebook has shut them out 
out of like industry bias. They they aren't they aren't talking about posts or individual posts, but the fact they can't run ads on there means that Facebook and Google are using their dominant market position, aka a monopolistic position, to screw around with the market and pick winners and losers, which is kind of the actually the point of the competition bureau to try to prevent shit like that from happening. So, you know, like when I first saw this headline, I was pretty sour on it, but there's there's maybe a point here. But the point is more that like we have allowed tech companies to gain dominant market shares in a realm when we're supposed to have antitrust law. Um, and that's probably the issue more than all of the C18 back and forth. Other than the fact that the C18 back and forth is what triggered the monopolistic company to throw its weight around. Yeah, although in this case, like I can see why like a co- company like that would just want to say, you know what, if you guys are going to um, basically try and have the government shake us down for money, we just want to like cut our business relationship entirely with you. And yeah, if that means we're not going to sell you uh, ad space, and that also means um you know we're not going to uh link to your content yeah so be it i mean like yeah they have a pretty large share of the market although uh you know you can still go to these companies websites and access them and um you you can still advertise off google or apple or other uh ad agencies and whatnot um, it's not like that is literally the only place you can buy ads right now online. You you can buy ads on Twitter. Yes. Um, and I given the few times would. I've opened it up recently, there have been some uh, odd. I'm just going to leave the, leave it at odd advertising on there. Uh, the ad rates um, and their um, review process does not seem all that discriminating. So. It's probably actually a pretty good deal. So, yeah. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, at least from my perspective, this is all downstream of a badly thought-out bit of legislation, and ultimately, the solution is to undo the self-inflicted wound or from that uh, more than it is to try to go run into the competition bureau because a company that was basically the victim of a shakedown attempt decided to it doesn't want to deal with the people you know using the government to shake them down like i think it would be interesting if the competition bureau does take up this complaint and goes to investigate it it could take over a year for them to actually give a report and recommend any tools or uh, I guess they do have some investigative and prosecutorial tools that they could use here. I do wonder like what their ultimate result would be is like, all right, fine. You don't have to allow posting of news, but you have to let them pay you to advertise. And maybe that would be the fine result for meta is like, we're not going to pay for news, but we'll let news pay us. Uh, And that would be hilarious. Which would be absolutely hilarious. If that was the ultimate outcome of C18, 
was that uh, rather than funding the media, the media ends up paying Facebook. Uh, they probably won't. They have said they support a Canadian-wide boycott of advertising on Facebook. Which also um, is weird. Like To say you're boycotting the people you are then running to the competition bureau to try and let you use their stuff. Like, the whole thing from top to bottom is just incoherency among, uh, on top of incoherency. I give them credit for like a novel strategy here, even if it doesn't make sense with everything else they've claimed. At least it's like, hey, here's another tool they can try to fight Facebook with. And, yeah, you know, think- sometimes in a battle you use tools that contradict one another. This analogy fell apart. Yeah. I like novel strategies that are also good strategies. This one could work. Actually, I don't I don't give this a 0% chance. Um it might not get their posts back up, but we might learn something fun from the competition bureau. They taught us that uh grocery stores, if you didn't realize, uh don't have enough competition. But also that uh like it's very hard to get uh other grocery stores from outside of the country to enter the Canadian market. Like we don't need to rehash that, but like it, it was interesting like what why there wasn't enough competition in there well and part of it was that yeah anti-competitive behavior which it is was just a little the bit, story of yeah like canadian like, there's some weird real estate stuff in there but like that was like the main anti-competitive thing so yeah i have no clue how fast the competition bureau acts acts on complaints it's fun to watch the media report on uh stories that involve themselves though and saying hey we're gonna sue this thing we're being very impartial in our coverage of our or our complaint um but here we are this is the situation we're in speaking of lawsuits let's end with a very silly one the quebec superior court has approved uh and said it can hear a complaint by a group of quebecois individuals who are trying to bring a lawsuit forward to remove Governor General Mary Simon, who doesn't speak French. The federal government had tried to dismiss the lawsuit, saying that this belongs in the federal court. Uh, The Quebec Superior Court ultimately ruled that she is also the Governor General of the province. There's a role for Quebec, is what he said. And now it's going ahead. I just realized they would have a lieutenant governor. Actually, does Quebec even have a lieutenant governor? I'm pretty sure they have the same constitutional arrangement as every other province in the uh, country. Except it would probably be uh, what governor is in uh, French. Not governor or something? I don't know. It would be in French. But yeah, they would basically have a lieutenant governor. Yes, it's Michel, Michel Doyon. I googled it. Anyway, the main argument here is there's a... Uh, alleged constitutional requirement that the governor general be bilingual. Oh, I mean, it's alleged in that it's not actually in the text, and you kind of have to squint at it and come up with some uh, broad interpretations to uh, get to that point. And it's worth remembering that the governor general isn't just any old uh, government employee, and they are the, the I almost said queen's representative. Uh, I am still not used to having a king. <laughs> um, they are, yeah, the, the monarch's representative in Canada, and they are basically an extension of the monarch, and 
for all intents and purposes, hold pretty much the same office. Uh, you know, just kind of their stand-in when they're not in the country. And it would it would make no more sense than a, re- a requirement that uh, Charles or whoever succeeds him speak French in order to be the king of Canada. Uh, yeah. Like there, there, there's very wide latitude when it comes to uh, who can get appointed. Um, yeah, this kind of screams like, hey, every cabinet member should have to speak English and French fully. Like, I'm fairly confident that if we went through the history of Canadian governors general, most were not bilingual until very recently. I mean, the, the like first the- French Canadian governor general was um, it was post World War Two. Um, I think who it was. Anyway, I, rather than blanking on my Canadian history, I, I I do know it is in fact a like was not until after World War Two. Uh, so you have yeah a good stretch where that was not hell for most of the uh, history of the country they weren't even Canadians they were Brits that were uh, brought over to do the job yeah they were straight chosen by the sovereign until 1931 yeah and they're still constitutionally chosen by the sovereign just uh, we've kind of all agreed that uh, the sovereign's only going to pick the person the prime minister suggests. Yeah, I don't feel like the Earl Grey or Lord Bing had a strong grasp of the French language. Uh, I mean, I would not actually assume Fair that. enough, good point. Like, well-educated European is a demographic where I think there's probably a reasonably high level of French uh, knowledge. Although, you know, the Brits are the other factor. Anyway, of oh. all the things we could be suing one another another over this seems pretty low on the you know list uh the group justice pour le quebec that filed this lawsuit uh the guardian tells me they have previously depended defended quebec's ban on religious symbols they called for the closure of roxham road border crossing due to the asylum seekers crossing there um they the leader of the group who passed away uh filed a human rights complaint for being denied a job as a white man because a position was only open to women, indigenous people, and people with disabilities. So, just just doing some work over there. I'm pretty sure it was uh, George Vanier that was the uh, first uh, French-Canadian governor general. There you go. And yeah, that was an appointment uh, in 1959. So yeah, it's a silly thing. Like... I I could see a Quebec court giving it some air, but like I cannot see it standing up on appeal. The uh, it's about as squarely like the royal prerogative as you can get, and I can't see even a Supreme Court that tends to or that has very broadly read certain provisions of the Constitution going so far as to say that um, there is a formal legal requirement. To do that, because not only that, the governor general, yeah, it's largely a ceremonial role, but it is still their signature on all of the, the laws, all of the, um, like the orders in council and whatnot, and just to declare that the per, that it was an invalid appointment just opens up a whole can of worms in terms of 
okay, but what actually happens with all of the things the governor general has done since they took office? Because those would all be presumptively invalid if the appointment was not valid. It's a mess and a silly lawsuit. Uh, Neither of us are lawyers, so maybe we're wrong and this will go very far and create some nuclear rules for the Canada, which would be very uh, frustrating and fine, whatever. (laughs) Anyway, I made that a messy end. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.